Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When Hitler launched his invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941, little did he know that it would become the largest and deadliest battle in modern history. It turns out the German army was no match for the sheer numbers of soldiers sent by Stalin or the brutal conditions of a Russian winter. By the time Hitler's army had reached the gates of Moscow on the 2nd of December, millions from both sides had died. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to find out more about this important period of history, I've dug deep into the History Hit archive to pull out an episode between Dan and the veteran broadcaster, author, and historian, Jonathan Dimbleby. Together, they discuss Stalin's response, what was going on in the city during the Battle of Moscow, and why the Soviets ultimately succeeded in defeating the Germans. First of all, let's have a quick recap. We got Jonathan Dimbleby. We're very lucky. He's just written a big history of Barbarossa. He talked to me on June the 22nd about Hitler's reasons for attempting to invade the Soviet Union, why he thought he might win, and why he did it then. I think he indicated preparations in the summer of 1940 that Barbarossa was on the agenda. The invasion of Soviet Union was on the agenda. If you go back to Mein Kampf, the demand for Lebensraum which of course was there strongly in the German psyche in any case after they had had limbs severed as a result of the Treaty of Versailles. When I say limbs, I mean the the borders. And the resentment and the the feeling of humiliation at that he fueled by demanding space to the East, along with regarding the Bolsheviks, the Bolshevik-Jewish conspiracy as the principal enemy. So I do think that that was his intention. When it would happen was always in question. Early on in the war, he hoped he could cut a deal with the British. After all, they were Anglo-Saxons. They were very like the German Aryans. They could kind of come to terms. British wanted a global empire. We wanted Europe. Surely they would do a deal. And there was always a chance that that might happen, incidentally, until Churchill became prime minister. When that was clearly not going to work, and when the combination of defeat in the Battle of Britain alongside the clear evidence that he could not invade successfully across the channel, then he turned his attention to the Soviet Union. And he was in a hurry. He was in a hurry because the economics were against him. 
Germany was not a growingly powerful state. It was a weakening powerful state. And he had to move. And I think in 1940, he made the early noises about it, but there were a whole series of triggers which led to him making the final decision towards the end of 1940. That was Jonathan talking to me back in June of this year. Let's talk to him again now, and we can get deeper into Operation Barbarossa, and particularly the battle for Moscow. Jonathan, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. I'm very delighted to be with you again. We're talking now in December, 80 years on. I read descriptions of the battle for Moscow. I read them in your book and other sources. What was going on now across vast swathes, hundreds of square miles of Western Russia was unimaginable for the people caught up in it, soldiers and civilians alike. It was a nightmare of almost uh, unbelievable proportions. The German armies had advanced from June in 1941 all the way to within 40, 50 miles of the capital. There had been unbelievable barbarism the whole way through on a scale which defies any understanding unless you realize the deep hatreds and contempt that was involved on either side. It was a campaign that I think has no rival in history. It was also, of course, if you may want to talk about it, it's also of extreme importance to the outcome of the Second World War. But in December, the weather was unspeakable. And it was so bad that you had the German tanks bogged down in the wet, and then it would become suddenly very cold. So you would go from mud clogging every vehicle, horses. There were by now only less than half the original number, so only 250,000 horses laboring in the mud, pulling artillery, falling over out of the traces, dying, being killed. You had the Germans in a state of exhaustion, near exhaustion, lacking supplies, lacking food, lacking clothing, because when the weather turned from deep wet and cold, it turned to ice and snow with temperatures plummeting from zero, minus 10, minus 20, minus 13, up to minus 40. So frostbite had become an immense problem for the German armies. The Soviet armies, which were very large in number, they drive on Moscow by the Germans, involved 75 infantry divisions, and they had been decimated in this advance. So when you get to, I'm just going to check here, I want to find, get sure I've got this quote right. This was the mood of the Germans, first of all, on the weather. Here's General Heinrich, he was an infantry commander in Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army. And he was a very brilliant strategist, as it happens, who became very renowned after the war and was one of the few of the leading figures who wasn't tainted by his deep commitment to Nazism and the eradication of Judaism. And he said in late November, I doubt we'll reach Moscow this winter. Everyone is sick of this year and would love to go home on leave since there's no end in sight. It will be going on even for next year. Russia is crumbling, but not yet broken. His boss, Guderian, who was the most swashbuckling of all the Panzer commanders in the Second World War, not excluding Rommel, although they were practically peers, he was outspoken, independent. He broke all the rules. He got sacked 
later in the war, he came back to great prominence. But he said the, this is about his own Panzer Army, the Panzers having been at the forefront of the advance on Moscow, the icy cold, the lack of shelter. This is a letter to his wife. The shortage of clothing, the heavy losses of men and equipment, the wretched state of our fuel supplies. They were down to one day's fuel supplies because the gap between the baseline and the front line had grown so huge. You're talking 600 miles. All this makes the duties of a commander a misery. And the longer this goes on, the more I am. This is Guderian. When I read this for the first time, I was kind of astonished. I'm crushed by the enormous responsibilities which I have to bear. The Soviet position so far, from June, they had already lost three million men, three million. But by the beginning of December, they still had four million men at the front, more men than they had at the beginning because the reserves were so huge. And that was more important by far than the weather, which I touched on, which certainly had an effect. Harrowing accounts there. Tell me, Jonathan, about this kind of decision to go for Moscow, because this is something I found fascinating about Barbarossa. Should it be advancing on a broad front? Should they focus on the great breadbasket, the industry of Ukraine and the Caucasus? Should they take out St. Petersburg? And the decision was eventually made, no, after much messing about, we need to strike, launch a massive armoured spearhead directly at the Soviet capital. How much was Hitler involved in that decision and how difficult was that decision to come to? Well, Hitler's involvement in the decision, his indecision, was absolutely fundamental. He completely ruled the commanders at the front, the commander of the army group centre, Bock, who was leading the attack on Moscow, sought to resign and didn't because no one else would go with him way back in September because of the what he thought were absurd decisions being made by Hitler, impossibilist demands. As you get further on, you have both the commander on the Army Group North and Army Group South, both those commanders agreeing with him. They believed that they did not have the resources to, as you've just outlined, to take Leningrad on the one hand, to take Kiev, that they did take Kiev, but they couldn't send the resources needed to plunder the Ukraine and reach the oil. They tried it later in the onslaught of 1942-43 and failed, they knew that their resources were not powerful enough. They knew that the Soviet army, for all the preconceptions they had, that it was poorly led, that it was demoralized, was actually a formidable force. And it was resisting far more fiercely, bitterly in hand-to-hand fighting where necessary than they had ever imagined. Even into late November, December, Hitler was asking unspeakably absurd demands that they were going to have to encircle Moscow. At this point, the same point that the commanders of the front were saying, we're going to have to halt. So the decisions were Hitler's. The inability to resist those decisions was the German generals beneath him. And those surrounding him immediately were completely craven creatures. The frontline commanders weren't craven, but they could see no way of saying no that would be effective. There was a division right at the very beginning between the military and Hitler and his immediate entourage of Keitel, the Wehrmacht commander-in-chief on the one side and the army on the other side of the east. And 
Hitler wanted to do all three. They thought they could do it very quickly. It soon emerged that it was going to take much, much longer. That was the point at which Army Group Center, supported by the other army groups, said, we've got to go for Moscow. We decapitate Judeo-Bolshevism in Moscow and the Soviet Union will crumble. Hitler said, we need the resources in the South. And in any case, I need to destroy St. Petersburg, Leningrad as it had become. And that was unresolved until in the end, they decided that Moscow would have priority. But even at that point, Hitler was then asking the Central Front, supported by the other two fronts, to achieve the impossible by December. When you look at it in a detached way, as a military operation, you think, how on earth did any military force, a government leading it, make such absurd decisions and move in such a counterproductive and self-destructive way? And the answer is Hitler. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. At this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Bullfords were bad. But when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about his counterparty there, Stalin. I mean, in your research, how close was Stalin to leaving Moscow? and How panicky did the Soviet Supreme Command get about their capital city? The answer is very nervous indeed. Can I go back to October briefly? In the middle of October, up until then, the propaganda machine of the Soviet Union, which was very effective in the sense that it repeated itself a great deal and it was always talking about how the fascist beast was being deterred and that victory would prevail, suddenly in the middle of October, it goes out from the broadcasting institutions all over the country, and particularly in Moscow, that the capital was under threat. There was total panic. The announcements came out like, every Soviet citizen is now instructed to stand firm and fight to the last drop of blood. And on the 9th of October, this is, you have to remember, they've been told that everything was going fine at the front, although they were very suspicious and dubious because reports did come back from family members and so forth. They were told to mobilize all their forces to repel the enemy's offensive. Not surprisingly, there was anarchy and panic, which I could elaborate. Stalin at that point agreed that the seat of government should be evacuated some 900 miles to the southeast to what is now Samara. Foreign embassy staff was summoned and told to leave that very evening. This was on the 15th of October. There were huge crowds at the stations. Many more people were just voting with their feet, workers and peasants, the horse-drawn carts, the grand limousines of the powerful, party functionaries commandeering trucks, documents being burnt, and so forth. And there are two, I think, quite intriguing sidebars to this, if you think of our familiarity with their names. Sakharov was then a 21-year-old physics student. And in the middle of this chaos, he went to his university and asked the proctor, or the key figure there, with a group of other students, what can we do to help? What can we do to support? And he said, run for it, get out of here. And he was instructed to leave and in fact ended up east of the Urals. And the other was Shostakovich, who had been summoned back from Leningrad where he started to write his famous Leningrad symphony, the seventh to Moscow, and now had to be evacuated from Moscow. And he was sent to the train station and there was a a compartment which was kept for the different artistic groups, the Bolshoi and so on. And he was there with his family, with his wife and children, and cases, and he couldn't find his way onto the train. They eventually got on the train. He got on the train and he left all the cases behind. And he described two things. One is how people very kindly provided him with clothes because he was a very eminent figure already, of course, and how he could no longer think about that symphony. He couldn't work at all. He was benumbed. Did finish it eventually in early in the, the next year. So you have Moscow in chaos. Then 
Stalin says, I'm not leaving. And all the sycophants around him had all agreed that they had to leave, said, no, of course not. Of course, we'll all stay with you. So the Politburo stayed, but the whole administration left. I mean, Beria had been, who was possibly the most hideous of all the dreadful people around Stalin, you know, torturer, murderer, unspeakable character, was the most cowardly of them all, not perhaps surprisingly. And he, as they're going up the stairs to have this very crucial meeting with Stalin on the 15th, 16th, he said, we're all going to have to leave here, otherwise we'll be killed, we'll die. And people nodded around him. When he got in there, Stalin said, what do you think? And Molotov spoke, defense commissar, and said, I think we should stay. Everyone then nodded as they saw Stalin approving. So they stayed. I don't think Beria was very happy about that, but that's what happened. So Stalin was very clear. He offered key leadership at moments. I mean, he was a ruthless monster, but he was very good in decisive moments like that. And he stayed, he actually put up in the underground station, one of the big underground stations in Moscow, where the uh, facilities had been prepared for him, office space, bedrooms, etc. And the planes and the train that was standing by to take him down to Samara, in case that's what he opted, was stood down, and he stayed. And that made, I think, psychologically quite a big difference alongside a, a very ruthless state of siege to prevent a disaster. But one more thing on that. Interestingly, how thin the veneer of a socialist dictatorship was. Mobs were stopping cars before the state of siege, pulling people from them, beating them up, taking what they wanted, looting, old people being pushed aside in queues for food by young people, and an outbreak of anti-Semitism with people shouting, beat the Jews. And there's a particular case of a college administrator, a group of Jewish staff burst into his offices. And this is his description. Their lips were trembling. They were all white, the scoundrels. They were demanding that I sign their papers for evacuation. I turned them down. I was disgusted by this herd of short, short-legged, fat faces. There is pretty ugly stuff was going on in one way or another. But order was restored by state of siege, and anyone shot who was suspected of being a looter or in any way critical of the regime. And the people were shot. Order was restored. And meanwhile, the retreat to Moscow continued by the Soviet armies. But it was a more measured retreat. There was hideous, hideous situation on the battlefield, absolutely unspeakable. There were two huge encirclements about 200 miles from Moscow by the Germans, one at Bryansk and the other at Vyazma. And hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops were taken prisoner. A footnote to that. Of the 3.3 million Soviet soldiers who died in captivity, 2 million were taken in the first six months of 1941. 2 million. The kind of struggle after that encirclement, as the Russians had to escape the encirclement, the commanders, the generals at the front, Konyev was to the fore, saying, we, we need to break out of here. Stalin refused. Stalin, rather like Hitler, was saying, stand fast. The result is this huge encirclement. As they retreated, they finally did break out. It was a terrible killing spree in which they were the victims, hideous descriptions. There was also 
a continuation and an exacerbation of the atrocities committed by both sides. If your listeners can bear to hear this, I think it's important because it reinforces the clear view that this was unlike anything that was on the Western Front. Stuff like this did not actually happen on the Western Front. Here is a Beromkin, who was an ordinary soldier, who described what happened when they were able to fight their way back into a village. Because there were a lot of villages falling, civilians being killed in their hundreds of thousands during this whole process. And they managed to regroup, infused, he wrote, by Stalin's indomitability. And we resolved to meet violence with violence. Once towards the end, the enemy pushed us out of the village we were holding and began shooting us down. But we regrouped, then took the village back. We seized five of the German soldiers and literally ripped them apart with our bare hands, our teeth, anything. One man was even using a table leg to smash a skull in. We killed them in a frenzy of hatred. Then conversely, the Germans doing very similar things. Countless hundreds of villages that they moved through, they punished once they got through the civilians for allegedly supporting the Soviet forces, their own country people. And there was a little village unmarked on the map called Mikhailovska. The soldiers were ordered to fan out around the village. Anyone who was regarded as behaving suspiciously was to be shot. Civilians, this was an order, were to be strung up to act as a warning to others. One of the German officers was rather dismayed by this and raised it with his commander, who said, no, 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 no. He was rebuked. It's a valid response. It will act as a deterrent. And then that officer, his name was Rupp, who was deeply opposed to it, watched what happened. And he heard mass graves being dug, animals being led away, and then the gunshots, children screaming, the houses on fire. I knew it was a massacre. This is pretty dreadful stuff. But the German advance continued through the bad weather that we've discussed, and they reach quite close to Moscow. And at that point, Stalin asks Zhukov, who is the greatest figure probably in the Soviet military history, and he's treated dreadfully by Stalin. When things go wrong, he's sat and he's immediately reappointed to a more senior job because he's the only person who can cope. Anyway, there's a phone call between Zhukov and Stalin. Stalin says to Zhukov, in terms, says, can we hold Moscow? Tell me honestly, as a party member. Zhukov replies, yes, we can hold Moscow. And Stalin says, I'm glad you say that. And Zhukov then says, but I need more forces. By this time, he has under his command, incidentally, 12 armies under his overall leadership. He's got nine reserve armies. He's got 65,000 men in a militia guarding the defensive ring, which he had constructed or ordered the construction of around Moscow. And Stalin gave him as much as he could of those resources, and the line was held. And as a result, the exhaustion of the German troops, the conditions in which they were operating, the total demoralization, even amongst the army commanders at the front, meant that they were thwarted and they had to stop. And by December the 6th, they had halted. And in fact, 
some of the German units had broken and run. They knew that it wouldn't happen. And you have Bock, he reports, formally reports, the fighting of the last 14 days has shown that the notion of the enemy in front of the army group has, quotes, collapsed as a fantasy. And halting at the gates of Moscow is tantamount to heavy defensive fighting against a numerically far superior force. The attack thus appears to be without sense or purpose, especially as the time is approaching when the strength of the units will be exhausted. He was still not permitted to withdraw. That's why they broke and ran. So, Jonathan, this week, 80 years ago this week, that was being written, that German offensive ground to halt, and Zhukov was able to start launching his extraordinary counterattack. Are we talking here now about the high watermark of the Third Reich? In my view, well, it's both the high watermark and the beginning of the Nadia, because after that, the evidence is compelling of every kind, that from that point, it was inconceivable that Hitler could have a military victory over the Soviet Union. Soviet forces were growing in size. Militarily, they were growing in might with weaponry. The German forces were weaker. That did not stop Hitler, of course, believing that he could achieve his objectives, which is why the war went on, costing millions upon millions of more lives on the Eastern Front. But Hitler at that point, and sometime in those last few months, I mean, you, you can't put a fixed date on it, um, uh, one can say that Hitler was broken in terms of his ability to defeat the Soviet Union. And that, of course, had huge implications because that meant the Soviet Union would emerge victorious from that conflict against Hitler. No one knew how long it would go on. And that had fantastically important repercussions for the whole future of Europe. Why is the Battle of Moscow? Has it been overlooked? I mean, our telling of the 20th century often doesn't really include this what at the time I think was arguably the largest single battle ever fought by human beings at the gates of the Soviet capital. The Wehrmacht suffered its first catastrophic military reverse on land. Obviously, the Battle of Britain was a defeat in the air earlier. But this is a hinge point of not just the Second World War, but the 20th century, I think, isn't it? I believe it so to be. And I share the view that it's remarkable that relatively little attention has been given to it. Much more attention is now being given to it by German historians and by Russian historians, particularly since the archives became more available in the 90s, though they're closing down again now. The Western historians, I think, inevitably, and there are some distinguished exceptions, have focused to a huge degree, and I don't have any objection to that either, have understandably focused on the Western Front in all its dimensions. And that's perfectly proper because it was critically important to defending democracy in, in the end, in defending democracy and freedom in, in what became Western Europe after the end of the Second World War. But there is absolutely no gainsaying, and people like Max Hastings have said this as well, that the war was won and lost on the Eastern Front. Others have said, Anthony Beaver has said in his introduction to his book on Stalingrad, that if Moscow 1941 was the military turning point. Stalingrad was the psychological turning point. And I think that's absolutely right. People have focused much more on Stalingrad because that led that long retreat back, which with a few exceptions of battles that were won in the meantime, led to the, the Germans being defeated right back into Berlin. 
and lastly, talking about the beginning of that defeat, just from now, 80 years ago into January, just briefly, Army Group Centre comes close to collapse. I mean, the whole thing, the human suffering, the breakdown of command, the small units fighting where they stood, surrounded, both sides advancing almost blind through the coldest months of the coldest winter of the 20th century thus far. The fighting that followed the stopping of the German advance is just as awful. Yep, it continued. I don't think it is possible, actually, when you look at the detail of it, to exaggerate the scale of horror. You have the Germans retreating. They reached, what, 50 miles from the capital. All the armies in the front, the panzer armies, the infantry, the artillery, are all together in a more or less chaotic way, retreating in very, very difficult conditions. Behind them, the Soviet armies, soldiers bent on vengeance, seeing the total destruction wrought, partly by their own people, but largely by the Germans, of villages and towns and communities, and the bodies dead and frozen, with Germans trying to hack the dead legs off some of their own compatriots in order to melt the legs in front of fires so that they could have boots to keep them warm. Now, this was the scale of, of what was happening. Total demoralization, total sense it was all over, bar the belief amongst an extraordinarily bizarre number of them that somehow Hitler would have the answer, that all would be well because Hitler was still in command. And that little residual faith stopped a total rout and a willingness to obey Hitler that you can go back so far. He did it very, very reluctantly. You can go back so far and you can all. They actually went back about 150 miles or so from Moscow, never got close to Moscow again. And he set off on other ventures in 1942 once the winter had turned into spring and summer. Jonathan, that was a tour de force. Thank you for all your wonderful quotes and research that you shared with us. Everyone, go and buy your book. What's it called? Tell us again. It's called Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War. Comes out of paperback, incidentally, in the spring. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go, everyone. Uh, like Hitler launching a... Well, actually, that's an inappropriate gag. I was going to say, you're launching, you're launching a renewed offensive. All you have to say is cheap at the price. <laughs> yes, exactly. Cheap at the price. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much for listening, and if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.